Hello, and welcome to Marathon Swim Stories, where we connect with marathon swimmers around the world to find out how they got started, what makes them tick, and why they keep going. It's where we explore the human side of the superhuman feats of endurance swimmers, the connections that we have with each other, our support crew, and the waters we cross. If you've ever stood at the edge of a body of water and wondered what it would be like to swim to the other side, you're in good company. I'm Shannon Keegan, marathon swimmer, water relationship coach, and founder of Intrepid Water, where I virtually teach swimming freedom. Freedom to get started, shed the confines of the pool, or your preconceived notions of what's possible. Find out more at intrepidwater.com. Today I spoke with Will Ellis, host of an Open Water Swimmers podcast. In reflecting on Will's relationship with the water, we talk about the elasticity of time, managing grief, the illusion of control, and enjoying the journey. We speak in the context of our conversations with past guests and reflect on how and why our podcasts came to be. For me, it's the promise of connection. Won't you connect with me? Get out your phone right now. Draft a new email in the two-line type shannon at intrepidwater.com. Tell me what swimming means to you. I can't wait to hear from you. I hope you enjoy Will's story. I am really excited today. I get to talk to a fellow podcaster, Will. Do you prefer Will or William? Will's fine. William is what I get called when I'm in trouble. <laughs> okay. I'll definitely call you Will Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not in trouble, Will. Not yet. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Tell me, Will, what's your relationship with the water? Gosh, what a very good question. My relationship with the water is kind of multifaceted. I grew up in the Mediterranean. I'll get told off for that by my wife. She says, don't tell people that. My father opened the first nightclub in Ibiza back in the very early kind of 60s. And it was a, an indoor air-conditioned nightclub called Nito's. And so he kind of planted a flag on the island long before I was born in 1980. He got rid of the nightclub after a couple of years, but he had bought a little thinker in Ibiza. And over the years, he sort of, it sort of got built up and built up and built up. And it sort of became our family home from home, I guess. And all day, every day, my brother and I would spend in the water, diving for octopus, donkey's ears, which are the mother of pearl, seeing how long we could spend under the water, seeing how deep we could go. And I just loved, and I still love being under the water and being on top of the water. And that's where my kind of love of just being surrounded by water sort of started and, and came from. Whenever I'm feeling anything, really, water has always been there. Water has always been the constant for me and has always been that space to cleanse with a swim or a, or a dive or whatever it might be. But that's how it started. And that continued until today, really. But on top of that experience came proper swimming. I swam at school, not very well. I was pretty rubbish. And I found myself leaving drama school 
realizing I needed something to fill my time when I wasn't working, which honestly is, is, is quite a lot of the time as an actor. So I went back, I went back to the pool. I went back to swimming as, as just something to keep going. And I, I began to realize that swimming is for me control and it's control in my life where actually we are all spiraling out of control. No one fully has any control of their life. And in my case, the last five or six years have been extremely challenging. And so swimming has sort of evolved even more into something that I have control over and I can go to and is always there, has always been there for me. And it's a space to train, it's a space to have you know, metrics. It never lies to you. It's not forgiving necessarily, but it will always tell you where you're at. And it's a space to let go. It's a space to not think. And it's a space to have your head under the water, you know, for a long time. So the water, the water is my friend. The water is is where I go. And without the water, I would be a significantly unhappy person, <laughs> I think. And I mean, that's kind of my relationship in a nutshell. And that has spanned 42 years. David Williams on on my podcast said something which has always been very pertinent to me, where he said, swimming is the closest we can ever come to flying. And I think that for me is what being under the water and being comfortable under the water has always been about. You feel effortless and you feel comfortable. I mean, I've always been very comfortable at sort of 20, 25 meters under underwater. So it's always been a space just to be and feel kind of slightly egocentric that I'm in a space where not many people go to or not many people have the privilege of sort of going to but that sort of depth, which comparatively to professional freedivers is, you know, is nothing. But for laymen like me, it's deep enough. Over the last few years, certainly my relationship with grief and being under the water has been something that I've I've really cherished. I mentioned this in a couple of my podcasts that I lost my son in 2017. So being under the water and screaming and being alone and and just being in a space where nothing, nothing kind of human is around you for a minute or how, however long I, I managed to stay under the water has always been a great comfort. A big part of my journey is this idea of control. And I can I can go to the water tomorrow and I can swim 50, 100s or, or whatever, I don't know. And feel like I've had control over over some training. I've had control over some of my time where my life is sort of spiraled out of control. And the acceptance of your life being out of control is is innately human because I think we all have to do that. So to have a little soupçon of control at times, I've had great comfort and has given me more than I I think I can possibly put into words. Yeah, the notion of being a happier person because you're able to go to the water is part of why I feel like I have this mission to get more people to the water. I want more people to come to the water. And in America, I feel like it's particularly challenging. I mean, there's access issues and there's all kinds of potential issues because it it isn't part of our school system to have lessons necessarily. And then there's, you know, there's various reasons people will leave or they won't come back. And I I want more people to come to the water because I feel like we could just be a little bit happier society if we if we could have more people I think so. that could use yeah water i think so we share obviously a podcast and i'm i hope we share some listeners I, i'm sure we do and the the idea of the podcast for me was in a similar vein 
And I, I wrote down my expectations of the podcast. And one certainly was to try and, you know, bring people together for more. But if I'm being really honest and if I'm being brutally sincere, the real, the main reason I started my podcast was simply that I was missing swimming in lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I'd always had the idea of doing a podcast because I, you know, I've made friends with some lovely swimmers over the years. And so I thought, well, now is as good a time as any because I'm, I'm missing swimming. I'm missing, you know, to quote Caroline Saxon, I'm missing my swim tribe. And I was just missing that, that sense of camaraderie that you get turning up to a pool or open water where you can train with people. Because I, mm-hmm. I hate running and I hate cycling <laughs> and I'm terrible at both. But swimming, I'm, I'm OK at. And so it, I started the podcast, to, you know, slightly egocentric about trying to improve my mental well-being by speaking to other swimmers and, and putting it out there and seeing what happened. And it sort of it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I suddenly found myself talking to, you know, Sarah Thomas and Jamie Monaghan. And I was like, wow, these people want to want to speak to me. This is this is crazy. I mean, I was utterly terrified. Then in a way that it sort of came at the, the perfect time for me, at that podcast. And I'm not particularly fatalistic. My son, Odie was diagnosed at the end of last year just before Christmas with a very rare syndrome called Moat Wilson syndrome which is a a lifelong genetic issue so he'll need care for the rest of his life and I was embarking on the second season of the podcast thinking you know what what can I do how can I help my situation or other people's situation who are experiencing the same thing and we had we've been given a lot of help by a charity called Amaze who specifically help families who have children with disabilities and it, this idea in my head had been brewing for for a while of of swimming the channel I had provisionally booked my spot with with Eddie Spelling who was the pilot I did my double relay with a few years ago and that was all booked and I found myself talking she's I haven't released this podcast yet to Sally Minty Gravit or Sally Minty she's the oldest person to do a double channel crossing I think you might have spoken to her mm-hmm. yeah and it turns out <laughs> this is how I said I wasn't fatalistic, but this is just bonkers. So I messaged Sally because a friend of hers had suggested I, I speak to her. And so I messaged her and said, hi, Sally, this is me. I'd love to chat to you. What do you think? And she said, your name sounds very familiar. Are your parents Chris and Becky, who go to Ibiza a lot? And I said, yeah. How, how do you know? She goes, oh, I can't believe it. I used to babysit you when you were... <laughs> a one-year-old because I was the nanny to your father's great friend. Oh my gosh. We spent lots of time together in Lanzarote and, and, and other places. And so this, this person came into my life again, who I had, I mean, she's Sally's in, you know, in her, in her early sixties, I think. And oh, I obviously haven't seen since I was one. And, you know, the podcast has brought her and I back together. And she, at the end of our chat, she said, well, you must come and swim around Jersey. And so now I've sort of been roped into this 65 kilometer swim next year which I'm you know thrilled and delighted about which gives me the perfect recourse to start raising money sooner rather than later for this charity for my son so it's like these these various sort of things have sort of just sort of plopped into place as a result of the podcast which I sort of set up slightly for selfish reasons to feel better during lockdown but you know some good has come out of it you know there's been some lovely feedback which has been hugely generous and kind of, of people who have taken the time to listen and everyone's so different, but the, you know everyone resonates on a certain level about the water and, and our relationship to it and and what we get from it. And so it's just been bonkers, really, to sort of think how the last two years have, have played out specifically with regard to an open water swimmers podcast and now where I where I am going now with my swimming and this desire to swim swim longer and 
and be in the water for longer because I think there is something deeply cerebral about processing grief and you know when life throws you big challenges again and again there is something about endurance rather than a 3k race a 1500 meters race in the pool or just or just swimming lots with your club that takes on some sort of transcendence that takes on a different meditative quality to help you deal and process things i swam lake zurich uh, which was a, a 26 and a half k race uh, a number of years ago in 2015 and they call that the transcendence race which i sort of slightly scoffed at thinking you know i'm swimming to swim fast for as long as I can. And, and then it, I, it was a lovely race and didn't win it, but you know, I came third and the seven hour swim I was pretty pleased with, but that never left me that idea that time went so quickly and seven hours felt like, you know, it felt, felt like an hour and a half as had the training up to that, to be honest, it had all been, all been really lovely. And, you know, you can just get in the lake and swim for four hours and it, you know, it just feels like you've only been in for 20 minutes. There's something about that, being in that space, being able to swim in that space. It takes a while to get there because you need to train to train, if that makes sense. And once you get into that space, there's something so freeing and liberating about an endurance event in the water that just lets your mind go, that lets you have the space to just be still. Yeah, so many things are coming up for me right now marathon swim like it doesn't have the same meaning to everybody everywhere i guess what is a marathon swim that's because i was thinking about this and i i think the people i interviewed have certainly inspired me to swim the channel and do a jersey swim and, and see kind of what's next really in my swimming life but what is a marathon swim because a 10k swim is technically a marathon is a marathon distance right but when you're speaking to sarah thomas and jamie monahan and Chloe mccard these are just you know walks in the park and so at what point, I guess everything is relative to everyone, right? And that has to be the case. But I'm really fascinated by the idea, which I just spoke about, about having the mental space as you swim over a longer period, which just allows you freedom in, in the head. I mean, I'm speaking quite ethereally here, but I think it's very relevant compared to someone who would do like a, we have a, we have a couch to 5K running app here in the UK. And who, someone might do the same you know, in the water, they might spend a few months training to swim a 3K, which is wonderful, which is great. And that's, that should be celebrated in equal measure because that might be even harder for someone to do rather than someone like you or I to train for something that, that we know very well. So what does marathon swim mean to different people? I mean, that has to be, it kind of, it's such a broad term, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think Evan Morrison said it's a state of mind. That's my favorite definition of a marathon swim. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the idea that you're just pushing. The other thing that came up for me, I spoke with Jillian Best, who's a liver transplant thriver. Her statement, I think it's toward the end of the podcast, she talked about staying as present as possible. And I'm just like thinking about that. You know, I, was, I have a mom friend of mine who was talking about how she loves going camping because she can just be present in the moment with her daughter and, you know, doing camping things or hiking or whatever. She's not a swimmer specifically, but it, oh, that maybe that's it. It's that you can put everything aside. Like I can shelf all my responsibilities <laughs> for a day <laughs> and just go swim. And there's the spiritual quality for me too of the, 
a being present for like the sunrise or the moon set, or I feel like you can feel the earth turn if you're out there long enough. What is it then? Because I've asked this question, what is it about swimming compared to, as you say, your friend who goes hiking, who might have the same response, but swimmers, I think there's, there's nothing quite like it because you're so shut off from the world because your head is, your head is in the water and you're in such an alien environment because we're not designed to be in the water. We're designed to be on the land that, that, make, that forces you to accept the present moment harder, I think, than if you were running through a forest, which it undeniably might be very beautiful. Yeah. No, I agree, though. But you could go hiking, yeah, with a friend, right? You know, so you can chat the whole time. So it's completely, and that's presence. But you're right, you're in isolation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and even if you're swimming with friends, there's something about the water where you are, you know, you can't be still. And in, in that, the sort of activeness of your body forces your mind to be very present and very concentrated on whatever it is you're doing, because otherwise you'll drown. <laughs> and it's the same I, I find that I mean I surf very badly I might add but I, I, I go surfing whenever I can I'm a terrible surfer but I love it and you know there's something about being caught on the inside which happens to me quite a lot because as I said I'm not a very good surfer and you're you know you're constantly being battered by the waves and you're constantly trying to get back out and it's it's just so thrilling because you you know you you can't stop. You have to keep going. You have to, otherwise, you know, you, you're going to get pushed into the rocks or you, you know, you're going to drown. You know? And there's something really fundamentally spiritual about that sort of endeavor because there's no way out. Whereas when you're hiking, you know, you can just sit on a rock and look at the horizon, which is, you know, lovely. They're very different in the way we have to approach them as, as sports or leisure activities or, or endurance events, I think, aren't they? Mm -hmm. It popped up in my head. You said, you know, we're land beings. And I've had this thought lately, though, but we came from the womb. We came as a water-breathing <laughs> And it's, I've heard it, too. People say that, like, how you look kind of out, oh, like washed out after a big, long marathon swim. You kind of look like you're born again. <laughs> <laughs> very true. <laughs> very, very true. Yeah, so I'm wondering if there's something, uh, the isolation that's womb-like that maybe we're seeking. <laughs> that's certainly true. I mean, if you saw the state of my son after he was born, he looked like a pizza. And I think when they, when when you come out of a very long marathon swim, I mean, you see those pictures of Sarah Thomas, you know, just looking absolutely terrible. And I think someone's someone's taken a picture. She said she was given some Smarties just after she finished, and a glass of champagne or some some uh, some M &M's, uh, like some M and M's. Yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> And she had the champagne and of course it just all kind of came back up. So she's covered in sort of multicolored liquid and, you know, covered in the, the white sun cream and things. I'm just going to shut what's up. And, you know, she must have looked exactly as you say, like she had just come out of the womb all over again. <laughs> right. um, I mean, wow, what an amazing swimmer and so humble. Mm, oh my gosh. Yeah, Sarah's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just message her random things and she'll get right back to me. It's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> What is swim freedom? It's the freedom to start swimming when you don't think you have the skill, ability, or time. The freedom to swim with ease. The freedom to enjoy your time in the water. The freedom to swim further than you ever thought possible. What's holding you back? Let's talk about it. Shannon at intrepidwater.com Let's go back to the transcendence. I love that idea. I don't know that I've ever felt the same way about a swim, but I remember talking, I think it was Martin Webster, somebody 
uh, somebody else was talking about how like time just flies. <laughs> and I don't know that I've been in a swim that felt like it was just flying by, maybe moments flew by. It's funny, right? Because there comes a moment, certainly my experience, and people have a, might have a very different experience of this, but my experience has always been that you train to train. You can be as fit as you like for a you know, 1,500-meter swimmer. But actually, it's only when you start swimming for you know, nonstop for an hour, an hour, you know, hour and a half, or doing 10, 1500s, whatever, I don't know, whatever it might be. I'm saying that. I'm putting those things out of the hat like I did them yesterday. I, I really didn't. But it's only when you, you're, you're able to kind of find those sort of sets where you push through that you find that really, really comfortable, comfortable, slow pace. Because I'm, you know, I'm always trying to swim fast. That's part of my problem. And part of my distance journey now is, is trying to let go of that, actually. But that you, I found, certainly when I was training for Zurich, I remember my, my great friend Alex and I, we went to Shepparton Lake, which is a, a quite a famous lake here. And we went and did eight three kilometers back to back with a five minute rest interval in between to have, to have some food. And it was one of the best afternoons we'd ever had swimming because it, we turned up, we swam and, and we went home, but it just, it felt like we were in the water for an hour. It's just that sense of, of ease. And it was just so unbelievably kind of pleasurable because for those three hours, I guess it's a form of meditation. It's a form of, of transcendence. I don't know. I'm still, still kind of searching for the answer, but I relished, I relished those swims even more so than the actual swim itself. I, you know, I'm a big believer in, in enjoying the journey over the actual end result. I'm enjoying my training a lot. And that's what I'm going to, that's what I'll take most out of, you know, the next three or four years, wherever my swimming will take me is actually the training because the training is, is so enjoyable. If it's, if, if you can find that space, if you can find that time to just be totally still. And it takes, you know, I think it takes a bit of practice because of course your body's going to tell you that you're getting tired or it wants to stop. And it, 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 once you push through that, you know, I, I think I remember it quite well. We went, Guru us were going to do 10K Saturday, 10K Sunday up at Crystal Palace. And it, you know, it, it took a good couple of months. And, you know, we'd always have a Byron burger afterwards. You know, it was a big kind of community feeling for us as great mates hanging out, swimming, doing what we love. And it, eventually you just find yourself, well, I can, we can just swim a 10K nonstop in the pool now and just feel great, feel lovely, feel like it's only taken an hour when we've been in the water for you know two and a half hours so it's that space that i'm that i'm searching for now that i'm i'm just ebbing closer to i find with my journey this year i'm doing some 10k races this year as a way to let go of this idea of swimming faster so that next year i can just concentrate on just not stopping as opposed to trying to do a two-hour 20 10k and it's ebbing closer that that space to be able just to be completely free and just go and that's what i enjoy the most i think and that's why i feel like i feel like i'm I've been missing for the last few years, especially given the trauma that I, I'm carrying with me in my in my life with my son dying and then with my son's diagnosis. It's not been easy. And I think by by finding that space and by finding that those moments to be still, I think I, I will get a lot from. I'm not familiar with the genetic condition that Odie has or what happened to Dash to us. My wife and I spent five years going through IVF. Early on in our IVF journey, we have an amazing NHS down here where we were given IVF on the NHS. And my wife has a low egg reserve. I don't know how much people know about IVF, but basically they go in, they try and collect as many eggs as possible, which they try and fertilize. And then they put one or two back in the womb, see if they take, and they'll keep some on ice. It's kind of most people's perfunctory journey, should we say. And uh, normally a, a woman might yield five, six, 
somewhere around that figure, maybe more, maybe less. But Alice only yielded one egg on this particular round of IVF, uh, which was our second round. And miraculously, it fertilized and miraculously it took. And so we were just, we were the happiest people that you know we were so unbelievably grateful that this you know our wonderful nhs had, had managed to facilitate this very very difficult procedure that you know we knew at the time we would have had a very low chance of success and so we were can i swear on this podcast sure we were like pigs <laughs> in shit is my favorite description of that and we were going to go to Ibiza at 25 when alice was 25 weeks sort of the last possible chance that you know you get to travel before your pregnancy dictates that you can't and so we were in Ibiza and Alice went into labor and so we went to you know we went to the hospital and there's no NICU unit in Ibiza there's no resources to look after a baby born at that gestation and so we were told by the doctors to have the baby in Ibiza and let nature take its course which was obviously not going to happen as far as I was concerned. Someone had mooted the idea that there was a, a helicopter that could take us to a nearby island called Mallorca, where they have a NICU unit and a fantastic facility to look after babies born prematurely. So I managed to convince, in my best Spanish, I managed to convince the doctors that actually we wanted to take the risk and take this flight because I think they were worried that Alice might give birth on the flight, which would put her life in jeopardy as well. But she was pretty stalwart and said there's no... There's no way I'm having this baby here. We, you know, we have to give it the best chance. We arrived in Yorker, and I never forget the doctor's face. He, he looked at us. He, he took Alice's hand and he said, "You know, you've made the right choice. You know, we deliver babies at 23 weeks here, so you're in the safest possible hands." Which was just like the best news I think I had ever heard ever in my life, and probably will ever hear. They managed to delay the labour for another few days, but then Alice gave birth to our beautiful son Dash, and uh, he, he came out. Very tiny, obviously, and not breathing. So he went straight into a NICU ward where the first sort of 48 hours are always always quite tricky, but he pushed through. The doctors were quietly optimistic by sort of day three and uh, he remained relatively stable. We had, a, there were ups and downs along that time and he'd, he'd had a very small brain bleed. It wasn't insurmountable in any way at the time. Wow. And we were, we were at day six and we decided that we would leave the hospital to go to the local shops. We we're going to buy some of the staff some flowers, chocolates, and you know, stock up on things we needed. My mother and Alice's mother had arrived in the in the hospital at that point, and you know, we had, an, had our own room. I mean, we were so well looked after. It's an amazing team, and I'll never forget it. I was on the phone to my neighbour trying to organise our rabbit in Brighton, you know, to, to be fed, and uh, and I hung up the phone from our, my our dear neighbor and Alice looked at me and said that was them they're calling something's gone wrong and I said no no what are you talking about that was that was Gerard our, our neighbor I was talking about peanut you know trying to get rabbit feed and then out of nowhere my phone rang on an iPhone sometimes the name just pops up and the name Sonis Bassus Mallorca came up on my phone and I looked at Alice and thought how and I answered and they said you have to come back something's happened and then we walked back along with basically the side of a motorway in 35 degree heat not knowing if our son was dying or if or what, what had really happened. And we, we got back to the hospital and we were taken to a room we'd never been into before, which of course spun us both out. Alice thought, this is where, this is where you go. This is where you go when they tell you that your child is dead. I think they, I said, to, I said to them, do you call this the Sala de Malas Noticias, Spanish, the, the, the room of bad news, which they, they said, no, 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 no. 
the pictures of like babies in, in their mother's arms all around. And I said, this can't be the room, Alice. Right. Look, there's, right. there's, you know, this would be really, un- really cruel. There's pictures of beautiful babies. And, you know, and I was still hugely optimistic and, you know, feeling like, you know, we, we could get through this. I can't really remember how long it took, but we were then taken into, at some point we were taken into a room where they explained what had happened and his, in a newborn, they have this valve called a ductus valve in the heart, which they have to close because it hasn't closed, hasn't hasn't sort of developed yet. And uh, he ruptured his spleen, which reopened his ductus valve, which they'd managed to close a few days earlier. And it had this sort of catastrophic brain hemorrhage. Oh my gosh. And so we, we were shown the pictures of his brain. And at that point, Alice sort of just zoned out. She said, right, that's, it's done. It's done. He's gone. Whereas I was, you know, I was just trying to digest and trying to understand. She's much more pragmatically compassionate. My wife, she, she just gets it instantly. And she knew that his energy had sort of gone. She felt it in a, in a, in a weird way. Yeah. So I, I said, let's not say goodbye yet. Can you go and take a scan in the morning of his brain just to make sure that, you know, there hasn't been some weird clerical error and then we'll make a decision. So they did. And we spent the night, you know, reading to him and holding his hand. And in fact, no, that, that's what Alice did. I was sleeping just because I was trying to process it all still. She was amazing. And in the morning, you know, they showed us the, the images and we, we decided that, you know, we were going to say goodbye. And so we spent four hours holding him to, you know, while he just gently drifted off and not in any pain. We dressed him, we put, an, you know, a new nappy on him and put him in clothes and he was taken away. And I'll never forget one of the most selfless things I've ever seen any human do. It was just after he'd been wheeled away. Alice, my wife, um, we, we were sharing this suite, if you like, um, this NICU suite where there were sort of uh, cubicles all the way along and sure enough there were two other English couples there who had a similar experience to us whereby they'd gone into pregnancy early on their last holiday before birth one of whom had been born at 23 weeks she's still alive actually she's doing really well and as Alice walked out after Dash had been shipped off she turned around to both couples and said we're the anomaly we're the one in three so both of your babies are going to be absolutely fine our babies died so that yours yours are going to be absolutely fine I thought, and I remember thinking, how in that moment can you be that compassionate? I mean, it's just bonkers. I remember we went back to so a great friend of my brother's, actually, who's a, you know, become a very good friend of mine, had given us his, uh, his parents' villa to stay in for a little while, which was on this amazing kind of beach in New Yorker, right on the seafront, which had a lovely beach to sort of swim and paddle off. And we got back to this, uh, this lovely, beautiful flat, and my mother passed me a vodka and tonic, and, um, which was the nicest vodka and tonic I think I've ever had. And we, we went down to the beach, Alice and I, and you know, we decided to go for a, a swim. And we'd said to each other, let's take this as everything we see for now, he sees. Which sounds silly and sort of ethereal, to use that word again. But I remember swimming properly out to a sort of rock you know, a couple hundred meters out, out from the sea and my goggles, you know, filling with my own tears rather than seawater. But just looking at everything with a sort of renewed, a renewed mask, a renewed life, if you like, that I just, I was now experiencing something and having to, now grief was going to be a real part of my life for forever, really. And I remember looking at things with a slightly skewed and thinking, well, this is for you, Dash, you know, this is everything I'm seeing now is, is for you, is, 
because this is the only way I can now connect with you is through my own lens. And I think that's when the idea of grief and swimming through grief, which I spoke to Anna Wardley about, really kind of became a crutch for me. And, and swimming more than ever became a space just to be still and have as, as my time to not process, but in doing so, process if that makes sense because you're not act you're not being active you're being passive in your in your head and we then spent the next sort of seven or eight weeks with my family in Ibiza which weirdly and I've spoken to my therapist about this because I I feel really guilty that that was one of the most loveliest times I've ever had on the island because I was dealing with awful awful grief on the one hand as was Alice but I was being propped up on the other, by my entire family, we had lots of friends come out. You know, I think they kept us very busy deliberately. But I remember being very, very distracted, which was very nice. But it meant coming back to Brighton where we live it meant that was that was very, very hard. Yeah. Because we suddenly were sort of cast adrift slightly, which was kind of inevitable and that needed to happen. And we came back to Brighton and licked our wounds. And we were then very quickly, we had made the decision in the beef that we were going to try for another child because we were both kind of in fix-it mode and realised that that was something we a we both wanted, but also would help in some way create some sort of legacy for Dash in so much that there would be a sibling. Mm-hmm. And we came back to our beautiful NHS. So I have no gripe with or no bugbears against because they are just amazing for us to have the opportunity in the first place. But I wrote to our clinic and said, you know, are we still eligible to have a round of IVF on the NHS and they said yes 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 of course you are you know your baby was born early and that's fine and our clinic are amazing they are amazing you know we're still in contact with them a bit but we just need to check Alice's levels of hormones and of course Alice's hormones level hormone level had dropped so significantly that we were no longer eligible for IVF and this was really soon after we got back so it was like this absolute kick in the nuts that that was no longer an option for us on the NHS and that spun us both out I mean hugely that Alice had given, had, had given birth only three months before and suddenly we were told that no I'm sorry we can't help you uh, I I got very lucky then I was invited to do a, a very long voiceover job which meant I could pay for a private round of, of IVF <laughs> which I mean it's just it's frighteningly expensive so I sank all my money into this I thought if you're going to do it, we're going to do it properly. So we went to this very expensive clinic in London, which was like a cattle market. And Alice had to drink like a litre of milk a day. And I was injecting her at very specific times with drugs. And all the doctors, although they were very professional, very lovely, were all very kind of officious. And like, you know, you were very much a lab rat. Anyway, a similar thing happened. They only, we only found one egg. And by the time we went to have this egg collected Alice had already ovulated which meant that it was no longer there and so they we panicked anyway they spent you know a good hour trying to find it in Alice's womb they did they said they did and then it first and then rather than waiting for it to fertilize they just put it straight back in because there's no point hanging around and I'll be honest we felt quite confident because we just had a baby we just had a successful pregnancy on on one egg on one embryo I should say and so it seemed like we, we can do this. We can nail this because we've we, we've nailed it once before. Why shouldn't it work for us again? Anyway, it didn't. And, you know, that was another another kick in the teeth, which many, many, many people will have experienced 
with IVF. IVF is incredibly cruel and it takes no prisoners. And so we'd always said that we would try a donor egg scenario, if you know if that didn't work. Um, and we found a lovely clinic in Barcelona. Spain has some of the highest donor rates anywhere in the world. There's something about Catholic families being very generous with their eggs, much like in America, where they have very high sperm donor rates, as I understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for someone to correct me on that. And so we, we, you know, a donor was found very quickly and she was 19. Um, we were like, yeah, young eggs, great. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a success. And we had our beautiful boy, Odie, who was born on the same day that Dash died, wow. the 15th of July and the same hour. So Dash died at 10, 10.30 Spanish time and Odie was born at 9.20 English time wow. on the 15th of July. So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of crazy really that yeah. maybe... Maybe I'm talking myself around to being fatalistic after all. I don't know. But, and uh, yeah, again, we were just the happiest. We still are fundamentally just grateful and happy. And, and then end of last year, we were given his, his diagnosis. You know, he's nearly three. He's, he's not quite walking on his own. He's, he's not talking, but he's just the most beautiful, gorgeous, happy, happy, happy little boy. And so we are just thrilled that he's in, he's in our life, but, you know, there is a, certainly a lot of trauma. And there's a lot of anger still, certainly within me. The last six, seven years have been quite tricky, and it's that's that's fine. You know, that that's life. There are, you know, my if, I don't think my therapist will listen to this, but if she does, she'll tell me for saying it. You know, there are people who experience far more horrific things in in their life, than, and we're just grateful to be parents. You know, we are just thrilled that we have we have a little boy and we can we can look after him. There was a lovely analogy that our pediatrician told us when we had this diagnosis. We had a diagnosis from a geneticist who painted a really bleak picture, which is kind of their job, really, because they need to make you aware of what you might have and you might be, be dealing with. And our pediatrician said, there's a poem out there which you're going to have to find where, you know, you thought you were getting on a flight to Paris, but halfway through your flight, you're told that actually you're being diverted to Amsterdam. So you never get to go to Paris, but Amsterdam's still pretty cool. <laughs> and I love that because it, you know, you kind of just have to reframe your idea of being a parent. It's all centered on the self, you know, because Odie's Odie, he's just a beautiful little boy and he needs our love and care just like any child would. But just because he has a, a disability doesn't mean that you're going to be any less of a parent. It just means your expectations have, have shifted, which is entirely something that we have to deal with, not him. So in that regard, it feels like it should be so easy just to let go of. But, you know, I think coupled with the, you know, the grief of losing a son, it, it's very difficult not to feel like, like it's pretty cruel. But it shouldn't it shouldn't feel that way because he's just he should be celebrated. Mm hmm. Does he like the water? He does. He loves the water. He's not quite able to swim on his own yet, but we are determined to, to make that to make that happen. He loves the water. One of our favourite things was uh, was we have a little beneath my my dad's house in Spain is a, is a quite a famous beach in Ibiza called Cala Salada, and there's a little beach on the, uh, away from it which you you can only walk to called Cala Saladeta, and you, you put him in this ring and we paddle him over first thing in the morning, and in this ring his, his legs just you know going like the clappers and he's you know he's just the happiest happiest little little, little man and it was you know it's glorious as the, as the sun's coming up and the water's that sort of gin clear crystal clear they're really happy happy memories yeah that's beautiful 
I um I'm trying to remember. There's a book I read to my kids about one of the Native American tribes belief that we go back to the water. And I I love that idea that we can kind of reunite, I guess, kind of with your past and your presence kind of goes back to that transcendence of or the elasticity of time in the water. And we were talking about how can, things can be seem to go right by really fast, but I think they can also seem excruciatingly slow. But I like this the idea too that the water can connect us with our past and our present and the dead. <laughs> and yeah, it's really beautiful notion. I'll try to find the name of that book for you. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think swimming in different places makes you feel different things. We only moved to Brighton five years ago, but there's, there is something so special and unique about swimming in your hometown in the sea, which I never really understood until I, until I realized how happy swimming in in this off the coast in Brighton was making me and then I put two and two together that it's because it's my it's my hometown on on that level it's nicer than swimming in you know swimming in Ibiza in Spain because even though that's that's sort of a home from home I spend now I spend more time here with my family so it's and there's something about salt water as well I think over fresh water that is infinitely different there's something quite special I think about swimming in the sea compared to swimming in in fresh water, and I'm still figuring that out. I think is the easiest way to say it. So that's a that's a cop out on my that's a cop out on my part. <laughs> that's a that's a cop out, total cop out. But I am I don't have the answer to that. But there is something very different. Yeah, my sea swimming experience is is limited. I've gotten over even just getting in fresh water was took some doing for me. <laughs> I grew up landlocked. So <laughs> I want to go back to, so we've, uh, we've established the waters therapy <laughs> and water helps you stay happy. Did we touch on why you decided to, you know, like push a little further or what, what led a, you yeah, to? A, a little. Yeah. And I think for me, it's the kind of coming together of lots of things. So I still compete as a master's swimmer. I mean, I'm, I'm okay, you know. I'm not in, in some people's league, but I'm I'm faster than a lot of people, and I still love that because I still I still want to push myself to swim at a certain pace. I still feel like I'm 32, you know, and I'm I'm 42 in, in, a, in a couple of months. So it's, I still feel like I can swim personal bests, you know, lifetime bests rather than sort of masters category bests. And I don't think that's going to go for li- for a little while. But there's an itch in me about going back to that space I felt when I when I swam Lake Zurich and I was competing at lots of 10k races so I mean I can I've got this sort of training plan just on my on my wall right here so you know this year is about swimming some 10k races and feeling comfortable and fast at at that distance without pushing myself too hard so that the year after next I I can swim some much longer races it sort of feels like a, a foundation year if you like with a view to having that space to having that that mental space and 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 that consistency of training and the control i think uh, which i spoke about earlier the control in 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 a life that you know is spiraling out of control you know not only am i uh, an actor and voiceover artist who is constantly at the behest of of other people's decisions but uh, you know you are constantly looking over your shoulder with regards to grief waiting for the next you know the next thing to other to food, happen which is so shoot a drop yeah Exactly. And so in that regard, that's why the control and the distance that come and swimming for distance, swimming with a big, a big target, a big goal. And I've always wanted to swim the 
channel. There's something romantic about about the channel, and so it felt like the podcast. This, you know, how 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 much I've been inspired personally by the people I've spoken to on the podcast. That felt like a catalyst to now is the time. And then with Odie's diagnosis, it felt even more like now is the time because it's going to give me the headspace. It's going to give me motivation to raise money for you know the wonderful charity Amaze, who have been really supportive and really helped us on our journey. So it feels like it feels like it's it's sort of it's the coming together of of lots of little things that have inspired me to kind of just get on with it and do it now rather than rather than wait until I'm you know, in my, in my sixties and still sort of pottering along. We have actually, I mean, I, I, we have a, a swimming pool opening on the beach here in Brighton next spring, which is a 50 meter swimming pool heated, but it's, uh, it's open all year round. So it's also, there's going to be that sort of element to throw into the mix that spring next year, I have this amazing kind of semi-open water facility right on the beach where, you know, I'll be able to uh, acclimate properly in the, in, the, in the water and be able to use the pool. So it's, it seems like all these threads have sort of spun together to make me want to get, go back to that idea of distance and that idea of finding that space mentally to be able to swim for six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours. He says rather optimistically about channel and jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking to someone the other day about this and they said, aren't you worried about the cold water acclimation? And I said, well, it's it, it's got to be done, but I don't want to be swimming the channel over kind of 13 hours, really. I know I, I'll probably have to be pulled out. So, you know, I want to swim it quickly, but there's no guarantees on, on anything because you're a you're behest to your pilot and the, and the tides and, your, and the conditions. So, you know, I'm rather naively and stupidly hoping to swim Jersey and the channel fast enough so that I don't get too cold. And people who listen to this who are going to be screaming, saying, you absolute numpty. But that's, that, that's my really childish, naive plan at the moment, which will all change next year, I'm sure, when I uh, actually realise what I've decided to try and do and probably foolishly try and do it. So, you know, all my swims have been warm apart from the relay, but, you know, you're only in the water for an hour and then you're out. You can warm mm. up. So, What was that like? Tell us about your relay experience. Oh, the relay was great. So um, I've heard the boat can be rough. This is it, Shannon. Right? This is why I am so naive, and I'm I'm actually a bit a, a bit childish and a bit of a fool because our relay, you couldn't have written in a book better conditions than what we than what we had. We were a group of six swimmers, all used to train at the same swimming swimming club, so we're all you know we're all pretty we're all fast. A couple of NCAA athletes in there as well, so we're all we're all pretty good, and. It couldn't have been calmer for the entire duration. It couldn't have been flatter. It couldn't have been warmer. I think the air temperature, even at night, was still hovering around sort of, even at night was sort of 16, 17. And during the day, it was like 25, 26. And we had the water, water temperature was about 18, 19. So, I mean, it was a breeze. And we, you know, we flew across in, I think we flew in, in you know, bang on nine hours and then came back in just over, over 10, I think. And so wow. <laughs> it was like, Day I can out. do this. So, Day out of the exactly. water. <laughs> I can, and so we need, none of us got seasick. You know, one of a, a couple of us got quite cold because you know a couple of guys were really lean because they're super fit and do Ironman and things like that. But I remember after that thinking, well, if I have those conditions, the channel can't be that hard, you know. And that's a really stupid, stupid, idiotic, naive thing to say, especially having you know spoken to so many channel swimmers. And then again, the other thing is that I speak to you know sarah thomas who is you know like the champion of champion swimmers i'm like yeah 
she's pretty you know she's amazing and if she can do it four times surely i can do it once you know and it's and so i speak to all these amazing endurance athletes who are you know leagues leagues ahead of me in terms of their mental aptitude and their endurance and their physical aptitude you have to swim those sort of distances and times and you know i'm just entering this world thinking i'm a i'm a, I'm a pretty you know i can swim an 18 minute 1500 there's no reason why i can't nip across the channel in like you know 11 hours which is childish naive idiotic and pretty foolish actually but that's you know i'm i'm trying to talk myself out of that headspace on a daily basis but that deep down if i'm honest that's that's what i'm idiotically trying to convince myself of <laughs> But it's, uh, it's good to, you know, set a bar somewhere. I know, I know. <laughs> so there's some people that set the bar low and there's some people that set the bar high and that's okay. Exactly. <laughs> and I've got, you know, I've got, I've got two years to actually get my head around it properly. You know, I feel like all I can do right now is train for distance this year. And then I'll start thinking about, you know, acclimation next year. And when we have this 50 meter pool being built on the beach, which is right, you know, I live by the water. So if I can't get in the sea, and have a 50 meter pool you know at my dispose my resources and not at least get across on the english channel then i'll, I'll be very disappointed and have to have some words for myself but that you know you some fog might roll in and we might have to abandon abandon the crossing there's all sorts of things that go wrong but if i can't get myself in a space where that is what i can control then you know i'll have to have some words with myself <laughs> that's yeah that's an interesting thing right because there's this surrender that I like. I like to use the word surrender that kind of when you jump into a big, long open water swim, you don't necessarily have control. It's interesting that you opened with that swimming brings you control in the spiraling out of life. But yeah, but that's a really interesting dichotomy because absolutely you can't control the boats. You can't control the conditions. You can't control the wind. You can't control the moving sea. The only thing you can, can control is how much you've trained in your own headspace. And mm -hmm. if you've done that, then you have to surrender to what, what she gives you on the day. Mm -hmm. To quote Kath Ferguson, you know, if the, sea, if the sea doesn't want you on the day, it's going to be a very difficult day out. If the sea wants you, it'll be an easier day. And I'm, I'm totally at peace with that. Because be all okay I, if all you I, don't make it. Oh, I, I'll be totally okay if I don't make it. Because with any luck, it won't be anything I've brought with me. It'll be something that's, something that's happened on the day that's out of my control. So weirdly within that, I find control within that. If I've accepted where I'm at in my training, which will hopefully be sufficient, then I've kind of done enough because I think I enjoy the journey more than the more than the event itself. So for me, the journey of trying to swim the channel is actually far more enjoyable and far more why I'm doing it than actually to actually swim the channel itself. Because along that way, I will hopefully swim a similar not quite as far distances you know eight nine ten hour swims and things which is once you've entered into that realm is just glorious and I, I i hope in some way that again if you know if i don't make it for whatever reason it won't be because it won't be any anything i've i've brought with me it'll be something something else and that's that's what happens and there's no shame in that and jersey for example is it has the third most tidal movement in the world and so I think the fastest anyone's ever swam around Jersey, which is six to five kilometers, is nine and a half hours. But the slowest is somewhere around 15 hours. And so you will hopefully find a way to get round because the water hopefully will, will take you. So Jersey mm -hmm. feels like a, a really good sort of stepping stone to what might happen in the English Channel because hopefully by hook or by crook on Jersey, you, you sort of get round. But you might be in the water for 14 hours, whereas 
the English Channel, you know, you can be in the water from, you know, in some cases, you know, upwards sort of 20 hours, you know, which mm-hmm. I don't think I've got it in me to acclimate for that sort of time in the, in, in the water, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned you have several 10Ks on the books this year, but you also mentioned you wanted to let go of kind of being performance driven. Yeah, it's interesting to say performance driven because um because I'm not I, I'm not in the realm of a, of a former top level swimmer in any way shape or form. You know, at best I'm a I'm a county level swimmer. Yeah, so I like the fact you said performance there. That makes that makes me feel really kind of important and judgy. Thank you, Shannon. Um, <laughs> but everything's relative, and I, that's what I love about swimming because I, I I was never a top level swimmer, and the, the bar I would set myself when I was swimming with you know, swimming club and other much faster swimmers was, you know, I like to swim at this pace. And then I was suddenly, I was swimming at that pace. I was like, oh, cool. I like to swim at this pace. I was like, oh, cool. Now I'm swimming at that pace. And I, I spent three years going to every single different type of stroke clinic I could find from Swim Smooth to Total Immersion, Carlin Pipes-Nielsen, all these amazing kind of swim practitioners. And I sort of took the best bits of all of them and and sort of threw them into my swimming and balance. And, and that's how I found myself swimming lifetime best at, at 32. So I've got this rather kind of innocent and naive approach to kind of still wishing and wanting to kind of swim faster and longer and better, which I think a, a top level swimmer won't because they they know that at 20, they, you know, they swam their fastest and they're never, never going to get any faster. Whereas I still, I still am hugely ambitious with my swimming. But these 10Ks this year, which I, I am really excited about, are simply stepping stones for me for next year in terms of just getting some sort of distance pattern having short-term goals in order to kind of motivate yourself to to do the work to, to get yourself into a space where you can train at, at a level where you are able to transcend do you have any fear of um, injury or burnout um yes and no no because i'm fairly comfortable in in my body and in how much swimming I've done in the past and how much swimming I'm, I'm able to do now. And I, you know, I'm obviously a lot older now than, than I was 10 years ago. And my body's, I'm, I, you know, I have to take two days off a week instead of, instead of one. And I, I quite like that because it means I can do some work with some stretch cords and feel like I'm actually, I'm doing something a little more, more useful to, in terms of the injury, injury prevention. And in terms of burnout, I've always been a great believer in lots and lots of short-term goals and not trying to look too far ahead. So the furthest I'm looking at the moment is, is October, where there's the, uh, the Posidonia race, which is a 10K race in, in Ibiza, um, which I'm doing with my brother, which is also hugely motivating because I'm training him up to, to swim a 10K distance and to race a 10K distance. Um, and I should mention, actually, that my, my brother is a, a pretty motivating factor in my swimming from the get-go because when I was, I think I was 25, and we both, you know, we both come from this sort of free diving and, and underwater world in, in Spain. And he said to me, he said to me flat one day, he said, Wills, you will never be a faster swimmer than me. <laughs> and I said, how can, I thought to myself, how can you say that? You don't, I'm 25, man. You don't, you know, you're six years older than me. What, what do you know? And that's kind of why I then, I know I left drama school and I, I sort of went on this sort of, right, let's, let's break my stroke down. Let's really go for it. And I found myself suddenly swimming with a swimming club a year later, you know, six, seven sessions a week. And I remember that first time I swam with him in Ibiza after I sort of had found my, my swim legs quite well. And he sort of chuckled and said, well done, Wills. Well done. Well done. And that was sort of the acceptance. And that was, that was as far as it went, you know, it was sort of the, the pinnacle of my childish sibling rivalry. And now, you know, he's, he's, he's a great swimmer, my brother, but you know, 
he will never be as fast a swimmer than me. <laughs> so it, it, the fact the fact that we're both swimming the Posidonia race in the year is is a massive motivating factor for me that we're both able to kind of go and do that. And uh, you know, it'd, be, it'd just be really lovely to be in the water with him, even though. I hopefully will be a little bit further in front than he will be, but it will still be lovely knowing I'm sharing that that space with him and um mm-hmm. and hopefully you know he'll get round and it'll be, it'll be a really lovely day. What does Alice think of your endeavors? Well, she always says that she's a swimming widow. One year when I was suddenly starting to take swimming really rather seriously, we were training really hard to go to Masters World Championships in, in Riccioni. And we were, you know, we were swimming like two sessions a day and Alice and I had just moved in together. And so we just, we just never saw each other. And so from that moment on, she said, well, I'm, I'm just going to be a swimming widow from now on. Is that, is that right? And I had to sort of then make sure that I, you know, I wasn't being a complete mindless because you know, it's not, it's not like I'm a professional athlete. I'm just doing this for fun. This isn't, she's getting nothing from this. It's mm-hmm. a purely selfish act. And so mm-hmm. you kind of have to try and make sure that you try and balance your, your, your life in equal measure for others, because otherwise it, it can become, very selfish and very enveloping of your entire life. A bit like being an actor. God knows how she's part with me, actually. I have no idea. You know, uh, the most selfish profession you could probably ever do. And uh, I go off and swim for two or three hours every day. Anyway, she's a very, very lovely woman. Does she like to swim? She specialised in underwater um, camera work. So she worked on like the Harry Potter films. She worked on Mission all the Mission Impossible underwater stuff. And she worked with wow. some incredible people doing some really, really, really wonderful uh, things under the water. So she, that's kind of, kind of how we, we had a spark, you know, 12 years ago is that we both shared this sort of love of, love of the water. And she's a, a master scuba diver and all, all that that comes with it. And she's swam the Bosphorus with me uh, like four or five times uh, in Istanbul. You know, she loves the water, but she's never really embraced the sort of competitive edge to swimming. She's always just been very much, you know, very comfortable being in and under the water, but she's never wanted to swim faster particularly. But yeah, she, she's, she's had a much more interesting career than I've had, put it that way. Sounds like she's a really good relationship with the water. <laughs> she really does. She really does. Yeah. Any final words of wisdom for Marathon Swim Story listeners? I feel like a bit of a fraud, you know, talking about marathon swimming compared to the people you've talked to and the people I've talked to. <laughs> All these words come out of my mouth, like, you know, I'm going to swim around Jersey next year and swim around, the, you know, hopefully do the channel you're after, which, you know, I'm fully committed to doing, but I haven't done them yet. Mm. So in a way, I, you know, I feel like, I feel like a fraud compared to some of your guests, you know, and like we spoke about earlier, what, what is a marathon swim? You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've swam a dozen or so 10 kilometer swims, but comparative to, you know the the type of guests we've both spoken to it's like a fart in the wind it's nothing <laughs> i've explored this a lot just because i was trying to there was a time where i was interviewing these all these triple crown swimmers and world record holders and what i found myself wanting to do as a coach that was really circle back to the people who are just getting started i think in some of the conversations i had with some of these like higher, I don't know why I'm even putting them on an echelon because at the end of the day, it's that state of mind and like, what's, what does it mean for you? And I, that's why I keep trying, I'm trying to just bring it back to earth and like bring it back to really the, the medium, the water and how it connects us and all of that. That's what I'm working on getting to. But I found myself really longing to talk to people who just had a good relationship with the water or they just wanted to push themselves a little bit. And there was a woman I talked to who was, I think she's done 11 miles, but she's like turned 70 or 71 the day or two before I talked to her. And it was just the fact that she just wanted to push herself 
more, you know, at, at, at 70, yeah. be like, she'd run and done all these other things in her life. And now she wanted to see how she could do in swimming. But what I wanted to say was one of the people I talked to when I kind of, I felt like I, I had this like leveling of, but wait a sec, I wanted people's stories to be accessible. I wanted mm. people to hear someone's story to resonate with them. I wanted to talk to people who weren't all like club swimmers turned college swimmers turned burnout turned revisit it in their 30s. Mm. You know, I wanted to talk to people who really just felt the need to go out and push themselves. And one of the people I talked to because I found myself looking people up to like see if they're like, are they really a marathon swimmer? Like, oh, I'll look them up on long swims. Because all of a sudden people started reaching out to me and be like, oh, you know, can I be on your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'd be like, oh, okay, well, I'd look up and see if they've actually done anything on like longswims.com or something. And then I started realizing it just didn't matter. And I don't need to be the, the judge and the jury of whether they've actually done a marathon swim. I'm really interested in, in the motivations. And so <laughs> your motivations for why you swim are, are what I want to get to. And I feel like we hit mm. on a lot of that today. And that's, and that's yeah. really what it's all about for me. So Yeah. Well, this has been really fun. It's Thank been you. Awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you were inspired by even just a moment of this story, please share it with a friend. You never know what might push someone out of their comfort zone so that they can find out what they're capable of. And please leave a review with your podcast provider. It truly helps others discover the raw and honest stories of these amazing endurance swimmers. Thanks for listening.